Hello, everyone, and welcome to On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. This is Barry Botino, Associate Editor at Safety and Health. And with me, as always, are my fellow Associate Editors, Alan Ferguson and Kevin Drewley. Happy New Year, fellas. Happy New Year. Hello. Happy New Year. Well, thank you to everyone for joining us for this 47th episode in our podcast's history. We know many of you have had a unique journey into the safety profession, and we'd like to hear about it for our My Story feature in the magazine. Submit your personal stories about how you got into the safety field by emailing us at safehealth at nsc.org. To view past My Story entries and catch up on all the news from around the safety world, visit our website, safetyandhealthmagazine.com. In this month's podcast, I'll discuss a feature story that I wrote about how the job of a safety professional has changed in our deep dive segment. We'll also be joined by NSC's Rich Fairfax to discuss changes that went into effect January 1st with OSHA's new record-keeping regulations in our five questions with interview. And we'll share lessons from this month in what else? The What Did We Learn segment. Is everybody ready? Here we go. The new year often lends itself to reflection, a concept that translates well to the safety and health feature story we'll be examining for the latest segment of Deep Dive. In our January issue, Barry gathers perspectives from several veteran safety professionals, asking them how the job has changed during their careers and what has made it easier or even more difficult. There's a great cross-section of responses from the sources, some of who kindly have been or will be guests on this podcast, and for that reason, the reflection really comes full circle because the responses offer lots to think about. So Barry, as we cycle into another Summer Olympic year, could you please take your mark to lead us on this first deep dive of 2024? Well, thank you, Kevin. And I did catch what you did there with cycle and Olympics. I got it. I got it. I I try. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Kevin, no matter what industry you're in, change is often a constant. In fact, I once worked for a CEO whose focus of her entire MBA program was change management. Change is something that many of us can be intimidated by at times, and at other times we can enthusiastically embrace it, and safety is no different. So for our January issue, I had the opportunity to speak with eight safety and health veterans to talk about that word change, as in, how has a safety professional's job changed? I got some really interesting responses about welcome improvements, about challenges that are created by change, and about efficiencies that have come about from change. Rich Fairfax, who will join us later on in this podcast, he's a principal consultant for NSC Networks here at the National Safety Council, and he spent decades working in the OSHA National Office. He pointed to the advance of safety management systems as a significant change in his over 50 years in safety. And Fairfax said the job has advanced from something that was much more compliance-oriented. For example, he asked, OSHA requires this, do we have it in place? Or there's a state requirement for this or that, do we have it in place? That compliance element, he said, will always be there, of course. But the shift to risk-based assessments is what he says is, quote, the change that we're in today. And he admitted that we're still moving that way, but he said, I think it's going in a good direction. One thing you mentioned in your introduction to the story's technology, what did the experts say about that topic? Well, Alan, as you can imagine, that was a pretty big topic of conversation on the good side and sometimes on the bad side. Technology allows everyone to be more efficient and connected, but it also creates more distractions. 
Julie Carter is the Director of Safety with Roy Anderson Corporation Contractors. And she said, technology is wonderful if it's used right. And she pointed out that her company, for example, uses building information modeling. And that helps determine at the start of projects where they might run into fall hazards before they are actually there. However, the proliferation of safety apps also has Carter kind of wondering if we're going back to more checklist safety. She shared a story of recently watching a colleague do a safety walk. She explained, quote, he was on his phone clicking the boxes. I said, are you talking to people? Are you coaching, mentoring, or are you just auditing? Abby Ferry is the chief risk officer at InsureAid, and she said her mind goes to technology adoption when thinking about changes in the profession. And she said, quote, with technology and using technology tools, the cool thing is you don't have to go in step form. You don't have to have suffered through the early version of some app or software platform. You can jump right in and enjoy their latest version. Now, Richard Hawk, who is a professional safety speaker and a columnist and podcaster for Safety and Health, he recently returned to working in the nuclear industry as a full-time safety professional. And he said the testing, surveying, and monitoring instruments I often use were surprisingly improved from his previous time in the industry. Nick Kilbania is the director of environmental health and safety at Boston Children's Hospital. And Nick said his organization is building its own web-based safety application. And they've been able to move a lot of paper permitting processes online, which has made those efforts so much faster. But the downside of the technology, he said, is being on call 24 hours a day. And Nick added, quote, there's so much going on that it's hard to disconnect. Were there any other common topics that came about in your discussions? Well, Kevin, one that stood out was from Pam Woloski, who is the Senior Program Director at Specialty Technical Consultants. And she said that two main themes are emerging as she sees it. One is that occupational safety and health professionals need to be much more nimble in their skill set because of changes such as wearable technologies, robotics, AI, of course, uh, non-traditional workplaces, such as people working remote. And because of those changes, safety and health professionals have to constantly be ready to adapt. Similar to what Rich Fairfax said, Pam mentioned that emerging approaches that are more focused on reducing risk and developing effective safety management systems. This can often change how safety pros interact with workers. And she said, quote, we're learning to build on the strengths that workers bring to their day-to-day -day work and focus on how to empower them using approaches such as human and organizational performance and safety differently. Though she did say these themes can create challenges. She added that I find this evolution to be exciting and refreshing. Jack Jackson is a senior safety consultant at SafeStart, and he mentioned that it's important to discuss the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the profession. He said, quote, from a safety standpoint, we've always talked about health, but I don't think health was as big as it is now, and that's for the better. He said, you've probably got more hand-washing stations than eye-wash stations in some workplaces now. And he also made it clear that, quote, mental health is real. And he said, we have to look at that as a concern. Richard Hawk also mentioned health and specifically mental health. And he said it's taken a little more seriously now in his return to being a full-time safety pro. He said that his team spends time, of course, talking about traditional safety topics, but they also speak in meetings about topics such as depression, anger, improving sleep habits, healthy eating, 
and problems at home that can affect your concentration at work. One thing I wanted to share from my interviews that didn't make the story was from Nick Kilbania in Boston. He said, quote, the breadth of our department has expanded significantly even over the past 10 years. As you have more people, you have more projects to put them on, but you can start to experience staff burnout to some extent. Retention can be hard. It's always tough to retain employees for the right price, unquote. There's also a focus on retaining workers in the safety and health field, just like in many other workplaces and many other industries. There are many more topics that the experts shared their thoughts on. The print story, in fact, is five pages long and it covers a lot of ground. And I'm curious if any of our listeners out there can relate to some or these changes or maybe other changes that have impacted them. Feel free to email us at safehealth at nsc.org. We'd appreciate you sharing uh, the changes that you've seen impacting your career. Well, thank you so much, Barry, for your work on this story. To read this feature, as well as other news from around the safety world, please check out the January issue of Safety and Health Magazine or visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Every safety professional has a unique story. So, what's yours? Safety and Health Magazine wants to hear about your path in the occupational health and safety field for our My Story column. You can share your safety origin story by sending a submission to safehealth at nsc.org. OSHA's revisions to its electronic record-keeping rules are set to go into effect in the new year, bringing changes to some employers. With us to talk about those changes and other important record-keeping topics is Rich Fairfax, a principal consultant for NSC Networks and a former Deputy Assistant Secretary at OSHA. Rich, thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thank you, and, uh, and thanks for having me. As I just alluded to, OSHA's changes to its electronic record-keeping requirements were set to go into effect on January 1st as of this taping. Can you briefly summarize what's going to be different for affected employers? Record-keeping is probably the most asked question I get. One of the things I do for the National Safety Council is provide you know, OSHA interpretive guidance and ask, answer questions for, for members. And by far, record-keeping is the, the most that I do. I want to let you all, all know that I just did a webinar on this topic and you know, record-keeping issues maybe, maybe a week or so ago, and there will be a link posted on this podcast. So if you want to see that, that uh, or listen to that, that might be interesting. As far as this record-keeping reporting standard, let me, let me give you a little bit of background. Since the mid-90s, probably 1996, I mean, OSHA has always been collecting data since then on injuries and illness information from employers. The, the change came in the Obama administration. At the end of the Obama administration, OSHA basically expanded the record-keeping requirements. And uh, that went into effect again at the end of the Obama administration. And then when the Trump administration came in, they, they basically pulled that standard back and canceled it. Now we're at the Biden administration, and they're putting that you know, reporting requirement back into, into place. Just to be clear, you know, it went into effect last January 1st. The final due date for people to report their data and information to OSHA is March 2nd of 2024. 
And let me just say, it's, it's, it's critical that you report. If you don't report and you're required to report, this is something OSHA will be checking on on inspections. And if you haven't reported the information and you get an inspection after March 2nd, you know, you'll get a citation and you'll get a penalty for this. So it's in, in your interest to, to do that. Now, if you're wondering, you know, about the standard or, or the regulation, let me just give you a little bit of information before I tell you about the, the criteria. If you were to Google Federal Register and then write in the number 47256, so that's Federal Register 47256, it will pull you up to the regulation and you can look through it if, if you have that, that interest. Otherwise, you can go to OSHA's webpage at www.osha.gov and you can see the information, find the information on, on their, their homepage. Now, what's different about this is this new regulation that went into effect on January 1st is that it divides the reporting criteria into three groups. You know, the first group is that any establishment with 20 to 249 employees, and it gets complicated, but it's in certain designated industries that are defined in Appendix A of this new regulation, will continue to have the requirement to report information from their 300A forms to OSHA. This is basically all of you who reported to OSHA since 1996 are still required to report to OSHA. So that's the first group is, is no change. If you were reporting before, you got to report now. Well, the thing I want to make clear is you'll see as I go through these groups is I don't mention corporations. I talk about establishments. This is an establishment-based reporting criteria. So that means that any stab establishment or site that meets this criteria or the criteria of any of the groups has to report. For example, if you're a corporation and you have 100 sites across the country, each site would have to report to OSHA if they meet the, the criteria. So group one is if you reported before, you got to report now. Group two says any establishment with 250 or more employees in industries that are routinely required to keep OSHA records have to report data. So if you're a, a company and you're required to keep records under OSHA and you have 250 or more employees, you have to report. This is new, okay? And the third group expands it a little bit more and says that any establishment with 100 or more employees in certain designated industries that this time are defined in Appendix B of the standard have to report not only their 300A, but their 300 and their 301 forms. So those are the three groups. Group one, if you were reporting before, you have to report again. Group two is if you have 250 more or more employees, you have to report. And group three, if you have 100 or more employees and your NAICS code is listed in Appendix B, you have to report. So those are the three three criteria. Now, as far as reporting, OSHA by now has on its webpage a form called ITA, which stands for Injury Tracking Application. That's Injury Tracking Application or parens ITA. You can Google that or you can go on OSHA's webpage, but that is the 
link you click on to report your, your data. And you have three ways you can report the data. You can report manually enter the data into a, a web form that's on that, on that link. You have a CSV file, you can upload it directly. Or lastly, users can use an automated record-keeping reporting form system, and there's an application in there to, to do that, so if it's an ongoing going type, type thing. question I get a lot is, what does OSHA do with uh, the data? The main reason OSHA says it collects the information is to use it for compliance assistance and enforcement purposes. Compliance assistance is, is, is a good idea, I think, because it identifies high hazard establishments and it provides an avenue for OSHA to offer compliance assistance. I will tell you from an enforcement perspective, when I was with OSHA, I never liked using this data for enforcement because it's old data. And I found the OSHA inspectors, you know, wasted a lot of time going to places that it had a problem, and then now they've they've fixed it. The other reason that OSHA uses the data to collect it is just basically for transparency. They want anyone who's interested in injury and illness rates or data or what companies are doing to have access to to the data. Short question, a long answer, but I'll turn it back to you folks for the next question. Where do employers typically go wrong in your experience when it comes to OSHA record keeping? The biggest area they go wrong in their record keeping is not understanding what's recordable. For example, first aid cases are not recordable and you don't have to list that on there. Non-first aid cases are recordable. And a lot of people define, you know, there'll be a, a minor injury, for example, but it's actually recordable. And they'll look at it and say, well, this is really first aid. It's not, not recordable. First aid is actually clearly defined. There's only 14 elements, if you will, under the standard that OSHA regards as, as first aid case. I'm not going to go through all 14, but I'll go through, through some of them. You know, if you give somebody non-prescription-based painkillers like Advil or Tylenol or, or aspirin, um, that's first aid. If you give them over-the-counter painkillers, but you give it to them in prescription strength, that makes it recordable. Or if you're using prescription-based painkillers, that's recordable. Basically, anytime an employee gets a prescription for something, that makes it recordable. And it's not first aid at, at that point. Administering immunization, such as for TB or something like that, is first aid and not recordable. If somebody has a, a wound or a burn or an abrasion to their skin, and you respond by cleaning, flushing, or soaking the wound, that's first aid. If you put on a bandage, gauze pads, stair strips, or something, or butterfly bandages, for example, that also is first aid. Anything beyond that is non-first aid and recordable. You know, if someone has a sore muscle and you use hot or cold therapy, that's first aid. There's a bunch. It's all defined in the standard. I won't go through all of them, but there's basically 14 elements that OSHA defines as first aid. And if it's not one of those first aid, then it makes it, it recordable. The other thing that probably plays into it the, the most is a misunderstanding 
by the company or the, the employer as far as what makes a workplace and what makes something work-related. A lot of things can happen and people think that it's didn't happen in my workplace or it's not work-related, therefore it's not recordable. More times than not, they're wrong. If you have somebody that, that part of their job is they go from facility to facility or they're traveling on the road, that traveling is their workplace. If someone's in the parking lot, that's their workplace. There are some exceptions, there are very few exceptions, but one exception is if you're driving into the parking lot and you get into an accident and you're in, injured, that's not recordable. But if you park in your parking space and you get out of your car and you slip and fall in the parking lot and break your ankle or, or something like that, that is recordable. So a lot of people misconstrue the, the definition. I'll give you give you one example on this call, and it's kind of funny, but not funny, if you, you will. But this was in rural Georgia, I think. And this just actually happened a few months ago. The guy got out of his car in the, gar- in the employee parking lot, was walking up the walkway to go into the employee entrance, and he was carrying his bagged lunch with him. And unbeknownst to him, a wild pig came out of the brush, came up behind him, grabbed his lunch, and started to take off. And I have no idea why, and I, you know, to this day I don't understand why, but the employee proceeded to jump on the pig and try to wrestle his lunch back away from the pig. You know, this is a 400-pound pig. And needless to say, the pig won, and the employee ended up in the, the hospital. I, I don't remember what his, his injuries were, but there's enough that he was hospitalizing course the company called me up and said surely that's not recordable you know we have no control and that's kind of the key thing they said we had no control over what the employee would do or why the employee chose to wrestle the pig and I had to tell them it was recordable because it happened in the workplace it happened on their property and since it happened in the workplace OSHA regarded it as work related so it was it was recordable so two other areas employers get in trouble on is the reporting requirements. There's a hospitalization or somebody loses an eye or there's an amputation or, or something like that. You know, it just takes one one person. That's reportable to OSHA and that is often overlooked, which makes it a citable item and a recordable item. Then the other thing is fatalities. Fatalities have to be reported within eight hours. And if they fail to do that, that's citable by OSHA. On the reporting for, for an injury, the employer has 24 hours for, for that. The mistake employers make, and it's, it's not so much on, on the recordability and, and adding it to, to the forms, but I, I see this time and, and time again. There's been an incident and an employee is injured and you know the, the employer obviously responds and takes care of the employee. Then as far as the, the hazard, they go and fix it, which is good. But the good thing to do is maybe to take a step back and say, why did this happen? And, you know, were our controls that we had in place adequate? Or do we need to revamp the controls? Or do we need to do more training? Or, or you know, do we need to do something? And that oftentimes is is more, well, actually more times than not, it's it's not done. It's like one and done. They fix it and then they, they move on and they, they think they've solved everything. 
The other thing related to that is more times than not, companies have similar operations in other areas. In addition to taking a step back, assessing and looking at it and looking at what controls are in place or what controls need to be in place, then they carry that a few steps further. So they look at other operations. I've seen many times with small, medium-sized employers, they get in and they fix it and they, they're happy because they took care of the problem. And then a month later, the same thing happens on another line or something like that. Rich, I wanted to ask you, for folks who want to improve their record keeping, what are some simple steps to get started? I actually have two approaches to that answer. One is employers need to look at record keeping as as a, a tool for assessing and evaluating you know, their safety and health, health programs. And I'll, I'll talk more about that probably in, in a moment. A mistake a lot of employers make is, you know, it's assigned to somebody that really doesn't want to do it. It becomes a, a chore rather than a, a responsibility, if, if you will. And record keeping needs to be managed. And I, you know, I mentioned it, it's a tool. It's a, even though it's record keeping and OSHA rates and all that are lagging indicators, they are an important evaluation point for doing assessments and determining you know, potential serious injury and illness and fatality hazards and, and things like, like that. And that's probably the first thing employers start doing is, is looking at it is if they do indeed really want to protect their workers and they do want to have a safety and health management system, that sort of tool or evaluation point is, um, is good to use. Now, as far as assistance on, on record keeping, you know, I mean, OSHA gets a lot of criticism, but, but frankly, their compliance assistance documents, their frequently asked questions documents, their letters of interpretation documents, um, they have booklets out on, on record keeping. You know, I have all that stuff and I use it to answer questions what, when, you know, people contact me. That's good information. And, you know, downloading something from OSHA's webpage, for God's sakes, will not generate an inspection. So there's a lot of really good documents and information that OSHA, OSHA has. And the, the other thing I'll just throw out is, you know, in each and every OSHA area office, they have a, a position called a compliance assistance specialist. That position is mandated under the, under the appropriations bill that OSHA gets. It is disassociated from the enforcement piece with OSHA. And um, they are not allowed to do enforcement. They are not allowed to report things to the, the enforcement people. And they're there solely to answer questions. So if you have record-keeping questions, you know, um, you can give OSHA a call at the local area office and ask for the compliance assistance specialist. You know, they will give you their answer. And, and that's what they do. I mean, they're, you know, they're dedicated to, to doing that. They, the other alternative is to go outside of OSHA. And I, I will tell you, there are lots of really good webinars on, on OSHA record keeping, OSHA recordability. There's a lot of groups and associations that provide information. And, you know, I, I, like I mentioned, just, you know, a week or so earlier, I gave a, a webinar on, on record keeping and, and this new, new standard. So, um, you know, that's all good information. It's good interpretive guidance. And um, so there's a lot of av avenues out there. I'm sure there are more, but that's kind of what came 
came to me in the top of my head. Well, Rich, aside from OSHA compliance, what are some of the other main benefits of employer record keeping? Well, I touched on it on, on the last one. It's a tool. That one of the key things in, in workplace safety and health, in, in my opinion, is, is implementing a safety and health management system where, you know, you've got the management commitment, uh, you know, employee involvement, the training, the hazard assessment, and the correction or the identification and correction of, of hazards. The, the first step in all that, in, in my mind, you know, falls back on, on record keeping, especially for small and mid-sized employers, because that information in those records will tune you in, if you will, to where the hazards are, where the problems are, where the potential for injuries and illnesses are. And what a lot of employers do is they take the record keeping. And even though a near miss, for example, where, you know, something happened, but nobody was hurt, thank goodness, they tie those two things together. So they're coupled together, even though they're, they're separate entities. And they use those to identify, you know, hazards. They use that to assess the risk. They use it those to determine, you know, if the controls that are in place are, are adequate. So any employer wanting to deal with workplace safety, and in my mind, um, OSHA record keeping is a good, good place to, to start. You know, the, it provides an avenue, like I said, for assessing serious hazards and correcting them. It's also a tracking mechanism, so you can track where the injuries and illnesses are, are happening. I, I, I will tell you, I started with OSHA in, in the early 1970s as a, a compliance officer. I was an industrial hygienist, but the first thing I did when I started an inspection after I did the opening conference was I looked at the injury and illness records because you could go through the records and just at a glance and you, you would be able to say, okay, we're having eye injuries over in this department or there seems to be some strains and sprains over in, in this department. And you can believe after I looked at the records, you know, I had an, a plan for doing the inspection, you know, and the employers are aware and they know they should be doing the same, same thing. It just provides a, a, a good avenue. And I want to jump off track just for a minute because I mentioned that the OSHA record keeping is a, a lagging indicator. So you're responding, you know, after the, the fact as opposed to leading indicators where you're collecting information so you can kind of predetermine, if you will, where an injury or an illness might might occur. ASTM has a standard called 2920, I think. It's a record-keeping standard. It's, it's a lagging indicator also, but what's nice about it is a lot of the record OSHA record-keeping, you get defined overburdened, if you will, with injuries and illnesses that, in my mind, are, are not work-related. You know, they happen at, in the workplace, but they're not directly related to work. And what's nice about the ASTM standard is it focuses on serious hazards, both for health and safety, and it redefines what is in a workplace. So it provides, I think, a, a better tool for identifying and, and correcting hazards. The OSHA stuff does a good job too, but it gets a little bit filled with other items that kind of take you take you away, like the pig example I I told you, you know, and I, I still don't see how that's that's work related. What are some resources for employers who want to better understand OSHA record keeping? 
OSHA's webpage, as I've mentioned, you know, the, the frequently asked questions document is, is an excellent document. There's guidance documents, there's booklets that OSHA does, and there's letters of interpretation. You know, and, and frankly, I, I think the absolute best record keeping information document is what's referred to as the Blue Book. A good friend of mine was the one who was in charge of record keeping back with OSHA in the 80s and 90s. He wrote the book. And, uh, you know, he actually worked for NSC for a little while when ORC was, was required. But those are really good internal sources. Contacting OSHA and asking for the compliance assistance specialist, I think, is an excellent resource. If you want to pay for it, there's consulting firms that specialize in record keeping. There's a number of attorneys that um, we, I call them OSHA bar attorneys because they focus on OSHA cases. A lot of them specialize in record keeping, and the ones I'm familiar with do do a, an excellent job. And I, I'll be honest, I contact some of them when I've got a question that just befuddles me, and um, I can get their their opinion. So, and then there's other, you know, other groups and associations and professional organizations that do webinars and you know provide information. Well, thank you so much, as always, for your insights, Rich, and thank you once again for joining us on the safe side. Okay, my pleasure. I have only come here seeking knowledge. So sang the police, better them than me, in the song Wrapped Around Your Finger in 1983. In the spirit of Sting, we're here to share what we've learned in the past month, be it on the job or off. And to start, I will share something that uh, I learned on the job, but first, it, this just seemed like a, a good place to share that Rich's, uh, Rich's anecdote about the pig. We're, I know we're going to talk about that for a while, and uh, the words, needless to say, the pig one come to mind. Um, <laughs> also, this seemed like the only avenue left for this. We're, we're just clear of the holidays, but I find myself, I've been here at, at NSC um, with the safety and health team now for going on eight years. And I know I've noticed different things that I've seen before now through the safety prism, but for some reason, this holiday season, you, you can't avoid either the home alones, but the, the iconic scene where Daniel Stern's Marv gets electrocuted. I find myself, I noticed the close-ups of the arc welder more this year. So that's probably not worth much, but I, I did notice that. Something very interesting that I had written about and it's down uh, in, in Australia. It's a, a campaign of uh, public transport, Victoria, and it deals with some of the violence, both verbal, physical, you know, really all kinds that are being shown toward transport workers. And in addition to this campaign, alongside it, there's a video series, and it really is, is powerful. It illustrates the message that transport workers are people too. And in addition to raising awareness, really the biggest thing they've done is they've designed different safety vests for workers, and it illustrates their their personal lives and their their personal stories. And the part of the campaign is just sharing the finding that psychologists have shared that when you know someone, you're, you're more prone to, to treat them as an equal or just treat them with the humanity that they deserve. So it just was, was something different. I know we talk about a, a lot about just rote safety and just things of this and that, but the humanity side of this uh, really, really stood out. Alan, how about you? Yeah, so we got to see the latest regulatory agenda here recently, the fall 2023 agenda, and there was only a couple of changes. One of those was that the lockout tagout update or the planned lockout tagout update for OSHA is moved from long-term, which basically means long-term actions, which basically means that 
Nagosha is not going to do anything for six months or so, at least, if not longer. That's been moved back onto the active agenda. And that uh, update is expected to kind of address computer-based controls of hazardous energy. There are some other rules that are going to come out, even even though this this regulatory agenda didn't show much changes. There are some rules that are going to come out, like OSHA's HASCOM update or MSHA, the Mine Safety and Health Administration, has a a rule that's coming out pretty soon for written safety programs for mobile equipment and powered haulage. By the time this episode comes out, it probably will have already come out. Uh, Barry, what about you? First things first, Alan. Anytime we can start a new year with a mention of Stuart Copeland and the boys, uh, one of my all-time favorite drummers, I I can't thank you enough for that, Kevin. So happy Hmm. New Year. Happy Police New Year to you. Um, (laughs) I wanted to share a story that kind of takes me back to my newspaper industry days. And it's a poll by the Harris Company about toxic bosses. I, I may have had a few of those in my newspaper days. And some really interesting statistics here from the Harris folks who said, 70% 70% of workers said they've worked for a toxic boss. 31% currently do work for a toxic boss. And the astounding statistic to me uh, from this poll was that about 40% of workers who have either had a toxic boss in the past or currently do have sought therapy because of that. On the positive side of this, having a boss who's respectful and creates a positive work environment could create a lot of benefits for workers. And the most common cited were workers being more productive because of a good boss, giving extra effort on the job, having a willingness to take on more responsibility because of a good boss, and engaging more with the team and staying in positions longer. Well, now it's our listeners' turn. Is there something important that you learned this month? Please share it with us via email at safehealth@nsd.org. We'd love to hear it from you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this month's episode. We know that your time is very valuable, and we appreciate you spending some of it with us. We encourage you to visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com podcast to check out all of our past episodes. We'd also appreciate you rating, reviewing, or spreading the word about this podcast. To find stories such as Barry's feature on Safety Pro job changes and the latest news from around the safety world, check out safetyandhealthmagazine.com. And also make sure you follow us on your favorite social media channel. Original music for this podcast was composed by Steve Maslin. Thanks so much, Steve. And a big thank you to all of our NSC colleagues behind the scenes who make this podcast go. We'll be back next month to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little. In the meantime, please stay on the safe side.